This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha in caverns deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 706 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast. I am your head number one, the internet's Joe Patrick, and for every number we add to the episode count, the more unbelievable it becomes. Whatever. I just can't, it's I way can't more fathom than that. It. Give me a break. I can't head, fathom it. I'm your head number two. My name is Matt Baum, and it's time for another Cosmic Longbox episode where the weird sentient being that inhabits our collection forces us to delve into a pile of eight back issue comics based on a theme. And let me tell you, these were some oversized issues this time, <laughs> Joe Patrick. It took, it took so long to read. Good Lord. And some of them didn't need to be that long. Really? No, did. they did not. They padded uh, some of that shit out, baby. Oh, and we are <laughs> definitely going to talk about that oh, more yeah. than once. After that, we'll set you up with our must-read picks for next week's new comics. But now, the Cosmic Longbox ain't scared of comics over 32 pages. So it's back issue review time in the ziggurat. Let me tell you of a time where once a year creators came together to tell a story too big for a monthly comic. This was the time of the annuals. Sometimes there were different takes on monthly books with a theme. Other times there were massive crossover events that set the stage for the future of the entire company's comics that year. Today, we venture back to a time when annuals meant something and weren't just a cash grab with a fill-in creative team. Let me tell you of a time when annuals ruled the stands. We begin in the year of 1,988. That sounds so long ago. <laughs> I know. <laughs> We're talking about Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 22. This one's from Marvel. It's written by Tom DeFalco, David Michelini, and Mark Gruenwald. Pencils by Mark Bakley, Steve Ditko, and Ron Lim. Boy, Steve Ditko had a banner week this week, I guess. I'll tell you what. Uh, inks by Mike Esposito, Butch Geis, and Tony DeZuniga. 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 Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Tony. Colors by Bob Sharon, Tom Vincent, and Gregory Wright. Letters by Rick Parker and Ken Lopez with a cover by Ron Friends and Jazzy Johnny Ramita. It's like everybody in the bullpen got paid for this one. It's crazy. I mean, there are, this is a true annual in the sense that it had multiple stories. Yeah. It had, you know, it's, and all the stories are totally different. It's wild. Here is your solicit. This is courtesy of mycomicshop.com. What begins as a simple drug bust in a west side warehouse escalates into a battle atop the Empire State Building to save the lives of everyone in the Big Apple. Along the way, the Amazing Spider-Man teams up with a familiar ally, the Man Without Fear, and meets a new superhero, Speedball, a.k.a. Robbie Baldwin. Just can't help yourself. Can't can't help yourself. I can't. I mean, I knew this was my first pick when we came up with the theme. Uh Uh-huh. 
Uh, you know what? I should say this theme is courtesy of Jared Savitas, by the way. That's Willie true. Toots inspired That's this true. theme. The high evolutionary wants to sterilize New York's population to eradicate DNA strands deemed to be undesirable. Ooh, problem, problematic there. <laughs> High evolutionary <laughs> eugenics is kind of his whole jam, right? I hope it ain't. I hope I'm not saying it's good. It's just what dude does. Can the web slinger daredevil and speedball defeat the purifiers and maintain the gene pool status quo? Then speedball battles a crazy stagehand seeking revenge against his mother. Kind of a precipitous drop in stakes. In that second story. Well, I mean, you don't really throw a speedball in that. Uh, conflict, I mean, though, you know, this, I, I, this is what he's I, good at, I guess. <laughs> Plus it's chapter six of the high evolutionary's origin story inside his wonder gore mountain citadel. Edgar Wyndham creates Bova, the future nanny of Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch and foolishly ignores a warning that the spirit of the elder god Kithan is bound to that very same mountain. If you are an old head like me and Matt, you know that the concept of crossover annuals has been around for decades, but the evolutionary war is the one that started it all. This is the very first crossover that took place exclusively in annuals. Now, obviously, crossovers had existed for years already in the pages of regular comic issues even going all the way back to the golden age you'd have characters from one feature popping up in another but the uh the the true crossover event did not was not created until first contest of champions which was a self-contained thing but then secret wars in 1984 that's the first ever intercompany crossover this though all annuals, all the time. It was such a success that both Marvel and DC would repeat the format for years to come. Marvel actually did crossovers in their annuals, like actual crossovers in their annuals until all the way up until 1992. So for the next four years after this, the second one was Atlantis Attacks, which is probably the most famous of them. And then after that, they did um, kind of like family batches right where it would be like four books lumped together to tell yeah, a, yeah. a story so it, they weren't exactly like line wide but you'd get like spider-man iron man captain or uh, captain america or whoever doing the vibranium vendetta right right and, and so they did that for another couple of years but for those first two years they would have a backup story in every annual that was one chapter of like the origin of the villain right and so, yeah, it's kind of disconnected, except in the sense that the high evolutionary is the villain of the of the storyline. And really, you, but really, you don't need to read it to yeah. in, to um, understand the other two stories. But everybody want to know where tremendous. Sad Cow Lady came from. That's what. Yeah, the question yeah, you know, yeah, end. like you might you might not uh, have the the scratch for the first. This high bubble. evolutionary, don't get me wrong, he's very Burning interesting. Up the back issue charts, but that cow lady, I need to know more about her. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 exactly. <laughs> a Titanic team up, a talking cow, and one of my favorite future new warriors fighting a deranged theater kid. This issue has it all. <laughs> Unfortunately, it is all pretty bad. The lead story feels like something you've read a hundred times before. It is, oh, there's a gang war, or Spider-Man's been framed for a crime, or both. 
but also it's somehow needlessly overcomplicated. <laughs> Tell there me is <laughs> there is a completely unnecessary subplot with a stereotypical gangster type that adds nothing, nothing at all to the main story. Zero. The art by a young Mark Bagley shows flashes of his future brilliance, but he's obviously still developing as an artist here. You know, no shade. The third story with the creation of Bova is ridiculous, and the talking cow isn't even the silliest part of it. A literal wizard <laughs> sends his soul. No, no, no. No. The ghost of a wizard. Yes. The ghost <laughs> I was going to say, wizard. back up. <laughs> this wizard's yeah. dead. <laughs> the, the, the ghost of a wizard waits hundreds of years until he can possess the body of the high evolutionary's business partner and warn him that a demon lives inside of his mountain. Why are, why? <laughs> what is, what does this have? Why are we doing this in this storyline? It's not like he has a fax machine, Joe. This is what he had uh, available to him. Right? I mean, I'd be willing to bet that he does. <laughs> He's but a ghostly wizard, Joe. <laughs> but the speedball solo story, courtesy of the characters, creators, Tom DeFalco and Steve Ditko, is one of the worst things I've read in recent <laughs> so memory. Terrible. I am so uh, happy to hear you say this. Cause I thought we oh, were, no. I thought we were literally going to get on here and fight. <laughs> no, 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 no. Really I'd be the, I'd be as a fan of the character. I will be the first one to tell you this. I cannot believe that this was considered a good enough idea to spin off into an ongoing series, even though that series only lasted 10 issues. Every single one of those issues is just as bad as this one. <laughs> yeah, it's so terrible. S Steve Ditko's art, I will say this, it's full of personality, but it is totally weird and usually not in a great way. Geiss's inks, Butch as we call them, they do elevate it a bit, but not nearly enough. And we're going to talk about that as well with Matt's oh, yeah. uh, first annual. Oh, yeah. The inker makes a big difference on, the, on Ditko's art. Amazing Spider-Man 22 is a completely forgettable part of the first ever annual crossover. And it is a miracle that my man Speedball survived this. It, by, by sheer force of will, Mark Bagley, who I didn't even know drew a, a part of his first appearance, and Fabian Nicieza turned that character into anything sort of compelling or entertaining. And like everything prior to New Warriors don't read it don't read <laughs> yeah, speedball stories trash. just don't do it uh i'm giving this a leave it it's bad yeah i don't admire this creative team when editorial came to them and they were like okay the evolutionary war it's all happening and it's a high evolutionary and and he's this crazy geneticist and yada 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 and do something with spider-man and they're like all right what if he's you know um, messing with the drug trade and the kingpin gets mad. Yeah, gang, <laughs> gang war, right? What? Or, yeah. <laughs> this is just pointless bullshit. The art is not very good. To be perfectly honest, the backup about the high evolutionary is my favorite part. <laughs> if oh, I, yeah, no, if it's, I gotta it's pick crazy. one, it's the best because it's so goddamn crazy. But this is a leave it. No question. We don't need to talk but, about it much more. This is but, such a mishmash that it just barely makes it sense. <laughs> but, uh, but like, just to, just to like give you a taste of what I meant when I said uh, the thing about the unnecessary gangster thing, Spider-Man webs up a bunch. This is a spoiler and I don't care. And neither should you. Spider-Man uh, breaks up a drug dealer, whatever it is he breaks up. Like he always does. Webs the crooks. Sure. 
and then flags down a guard or whatever. Well, but how does he flag like, down that guard? He stands on a light pole and the light a spider signal on him goes through him, I guess, and makes a spider signal. Or no, 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 no. He's got a spider signal on his, on his belt. belt. Okay. Belt buckle. That was not signal. conveyed very well. And I looked at it. When, well, I mean, you got to know about the spider. Signal. What the hell is happening there? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so he flags down this cop and he's like, hey, bad guys in the warehouse. See you later, bud. And the cop. I get it. It's age prior to no cell phones in 1988. The cop must have a radio of some kind, but instead he's like, I'm going to get right on that. But first I'm going to leave the scene and call for backup. <laughs> yeah. And then the mobsters go in and murder their rivals. It's not even the high evolutionaries guys. No, it's the mobsters right. that come in and then Spider-Man gets blamed for the murder. That whole thing. You don't need any of it in this comic. No. Why? No. And, and had that cop just been like, Oh yeah. Thanks Spider-Man. I see him webbed up in there. Now I'm going to go call backup. We don't have a problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had to force this whole Spider-Man's murder. Oh, Joe, yeah. let's stop. It's, this is just trash. It's, it's so bad. <laughs> really bad. It's really bad. A Spider-Man, a Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. A spins a web any size. Catch a and now an example of what happens when Steve Ditko doesn't have a great anchor. It's Avengers Volume 1, Annual Number 15. So my theme was I picked two Avengers Annuals and two Justice League Annuals because I wanted to go with the biggest of the bigs at because Marvel you're and DC. A coward. No, well, this one had two parts, so I was like, all right, I may as well. We could have explored part. four fun different themes uh, each, but no. This is even more fun. It's from Marvel. No, it's not more fun, Matt. <laughs> This one's from Marvel. It was 1986. This was written by Danny Fingeroth, uh, fan favorite Danny Fingeroth, with art by Steve Ditko, inks by Klaus Jansen, colors by Elaine Lee, and letters by L. Lewis Pohalis and Kenny Lopez. Here's a setup. Uh, uh, well, this says Lois. Is it Lois or Lewis? Oh, pardon me. L. Lois Pohalis and Kenny Lopez. Shout out to Lois. Here's your setup, and uh, if you go to any of these fandom pages, you may see that I added these synopsis to them because they weren't there. So, <laughs> a lot of times the fandom pages do like complete issue synopsis yeah. instead of like solicit style synopsis. Well, this, and yeah, it makes our lives difficult. <laughs> A baseball game between the East and West Coast Avengers is interrupted by the team of superhuman government agents called Freedom Force, who arrest the heroes and bring them to the Colorado Federal Penitentiary known as the Vault to stand trial for treason? Question mark? The Avengers are helpless in specially prepared cells, which negate their powers until a repentant spider woman invades the prison and enables them to escape, regrouping. They resolve to learn the identity of the former teammate who has betrayed them. Matt, well done. I'm impressed. Hey, thanks. Steve did. I actually, th I, I, I was worried that you were going to write something typically irreverent. No. And then get us banned. No, I'm from, trying to keep it. I'm trying to keep it like this. Get is us your banned from editing right? at fan, on fandom.com. Steve Ditko is a legend. No one will argue that. I am not going to argue that. But late career Steve Ditko at Marvel was. Not his best stuff. That's the no, nicest way I can say that. Not his, not his best stuff. <laughs> he packs his panels with a huge cast of Avengers, the Freedom Force, and a horde of vault guardsmen, but not much of it looks very good. 
at all, honestly. Some panels are downright bizarre, like Cap swearing vengeance in a thought bubble with a face oh, that so intense. looks like a vibrating rage emoji. <laughs> you know? So intense. It's yeah, crazy. oh, yeah, yeah. It looks like a rage comic face, yeah. The story is kind of fun. I always love the X-Men's baseball games, and I had no idea the Avengers once rented out Royal Stadium in Kansas City to play I baseball. I think this is the first in it. I think this is the first and only time we see the Avengers play <laughs> oh, yeah. baseball. And of course, they get to show off their powers until the Freedom Force shows up. I had no idea Julia Carpenter's Spider-Woman was running with the Freedom Force at the time. And this is how she ends up joining the West Coast Avengers. Kind of fun. Oh, point of order. First appearance of the vault, too. The, yeah, it had only been in operation for like eight months or four months, it says yeah. in the script. The stuff yeah. with the special cells was fun, and I love that they don't let Hank Pym put a shirt on for some reason. But <laughs> Iron Man gets to wear his armor in prison. Like they the last thing you want Hank Pym to do is shrink that like, shirt down. Now they sure the shirt trouble. get ripped off, right? But they're like, you no, go to no, prison. He's like, can I have a shirt? They're like, no. Everyone no, but else. I mean, that's why you don't give it to him in a cell, because if he shrinks that right. shit down, then you're in trouble. Who knows? Iron Man, however. Yeah, just go in there with your iron on. Yeah, it's fine. You're, you're, <laughs> you're all right. fine. It's silly, but this was the Avengers in 1986. The X-Men were sleeping with each other and fighting mutant racism. Meanwhile, Cap was a big blue Boy Scout that was literally afraid to break out of prison, even when he knows he's being wrongfully detained. <laughs> By the end yeah. of the issue, we don't know who ratted out the team yet. But once you see the cover of the next issue, even yeah, though cover. it's just a silhouette, it is it's, pretty goddamn obvious who It's unmistakable, and we're going to talk about that <laughs> to be continued skim it <laughs> okay listen um this is going to be controversial because i know i've talked shit in the past but i don't think claus jansen is bad i'm at and a point where yes, i don't it, think claus jansen can really ink anything but frank miller back in the day quite honestly I, it's 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 weird it's wild everything frank everything claus jansen touches immediately looks like something claus jansen has touched he's yeah. not a good chameleon right he's not no. a good um he does one thing he literally does right one thing. it's like you know the your average inker might have a style but their style does not fundamentally alter the penciler's right and that's the look. idea let the penciler be the penciler but lift their work you know with your and, style and yeah i mean and look there's there's room out there for artists for inkers that do put a personal stamp like Bill Sinkevich or Kyle Baker sure. or Klaus Jansen is one of those for better or for worse. I thought this issue looked okay for the most part. There are and you and I went back and forth about this. Steve Ditko draws characters every time a character talks, he draws them with their mouth open, which doesn't seem so unusual. Not just open. Joe. He draws them with huge gaping big mouth billy bass mouth he draws them with sex doll love openings is what he does uh, and it's i mean I, you could look at it that way if you're a pervert it is disturbing and so yeah i mean it's it's weird the story yes it's fun it's kind of fun but i mean captain america quit being captain america when he thought the u.s united states government was um wanting to use him for something that was contrary to his own ethos, or he thought that they were going in a wrong direction or right. They, they straight up friggin' fired him because like he wouldn't toe the line. So freedom force shows up and I get it. Yes. They're villains, but they are 
card-carrying government agents, and everybody there knows it. And to be fair, Spiral does all the work. Spiral does 90% of the work. work. Everybody else is just kind of there. And Spiral's like, I got him. Got him too. (laughs) But like somehow Mystique has a ray gun that actually does damage to Wonder Man or whatever. Like why? No. Well, only after Spiral took Wonder Man's powers. I guess. I mean, I guess. (laughs) Like she could have thrown a rock at him. I I suppose. But anyway, so Freedom Force is there. And they're there to arrest the Avengers. And the Avengers are like, I don't think so. And then there's a fight. Okay, fine. It's a superhero comic. I get it. But then, when they are taken into custody, they are detained without due process in a federal superhuman prison and then locked in vaults that are essentially like sensory deprivation tanks for superheroes. Well, they all have. Now, the best thing about this is, and I'm going to bring it up in my next review. They're like capsule, like doesn't let him, it rolls around. So he can't use a gymnastics. Right. It's like a super monkey ball. Iron Man cell keeps him frozen. Wonder Man's like stuck in a force field. And they're like, all we have to do is take Black Knight's sword. He's useless. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like sitting there pouting like, (laughs) like we put the, we put the wasp in a room with, no cracks or right. holes. Yeah, like, there's well, no shit. You all yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. But like the 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 government went from arrest to unlawfully imprison. It is irresponsible for Captain America to have gone along with it. Like it's contrary to every fiber of Cap's being. But yet we got to get through the issue. We got to get him in jail. Sure, sure. It's just like it's so silly. Um, I'm gonna give this a skim it because. Well, you know, to be continued, but yeah, I, this, this first issue is, it's not great. And the writing is not great. Yeah, man. I'll tell you what Steve Ditko cannot draw Iron Man. Oh God. Steve Ditko. <laughs> Don't oh, do oh, also uh, avalanche avalanche looks like the wish.com version of Rom. Totally. And, like, <laughs> yeah. Why does he have a helmet like yeah, that? I, and I wrote that in my notes. Like what is avalanche wearing? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, Oh, Why do you boy. need that to do his thing? It doesn't power him. He's a mutant. God damn it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't know. It's to be continued. It's the Demon Annual number two from DC Comics. The year was 1993. I guess it wasn't nearly a decade. It yeah. was five years. Yeah, but, easy there, uh, sorry. <laughs> but, from, but from 1986 to 1993, you know, we're getting there. It's written by Garth Ennis with art by John McRae. Colors are by Gene D'Angelo. Letters are by Steve Haney with a cover by McRae. Here's your solicit once again, courtesy of mycomicshop.com. The Bloodlines summer annual crossover event continues in this issue. The demon tastes new blood. When Gotham mob assassin Tommy Monahan, en route to score a hit against a rival gang leader, is attacked by one of the alien parasites and becomes the well-armed hitman. This annual's infusion of new blood into the DC universe. Get it, new blood. Uh, yeah, I got it. Thanks. I'll touch Thank on you. I'll touch on that again later. Appreciate you pointing that out, though. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll, t- I'll touch on that again later. In 1993, DC graced the universe with Bloodlines, a crossover that has been the butt of jokes for 30 years. The basic plot involves a group of alien parasites that came to Earth and drained people of their spinal fluid in a very H.R. Geiger fashion, 
in order to provide nourishment for a gigantic alien god monster thing called the Taker. But the hitch in their giddy-up was that a small number of their victims would survive their attacks with their newly activated metagene. This group of characters was dubbed New Blood by DC. Get it? Because of bloodlines? Yep, and yep. Thank you. <laughs> Basically, it was all just a way for DC to introduce a bunch of brand new characters all at once. Unfortunately for them, 99% of those characters were instantly forgotten. And then there was Hitman. Tommy Monahan had the good fortune of being created by two up-and-coming Irishmen by the name of Garth Ennis and John McRae. Ennis had been writing Hellblazer for a couple of years at this point, but The Demon was the series that introduced John McRae to American readers. Ennis's script is brilliantly irreverent, feeling like he's participating in DC's nonsense while simultaneously mocking it without them noticing. <laughs> Ennis introduces several characters and plots that will graduate to the Hitman ongoing series in 1996, like Sean Noonan and the unfortunate Dubell's twins. No spoiler there. Read the issue. His Etrigan is gleefully evil and terrible at rhyming, which is a nice spin on a very silly idea. McRae's art is absolutely wonderful. Etrigan is all pointy joints and teeth. Yeah, he's great. And the... And the dumber a side character is, the more ridiculous they look. And it's like some of these characters look like straight up tick, you know, outtakes, tick henchman outtakes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Ennis and McRae's run on the demon is a must read for Hitman fans. Not only does he first appear here, but he does have several appearances in the ongoing series. This annual is absolutely the best thing to come out of the wretched Bloodlines event. No offense to Gunfire, <laughs> who also yeah. was created in yeah. Bloodlines. Yep, we know. I'm going to give this a buy it. This is great. This, this comic is, is legitimately wonderful. This is outstanding, and it is a buy it. And it's made even more outstanding by the fact that it takes place during one of the most reviled and flat-out stupid events in DC history. It's the bloodlines. I cannot stress enough. Bloodlines is terrible. It's terrible. And it takes a creative team like Garth Ennis and John McRae to do something this good and self-aware. And I'm going to take it a step further outside of Jack Kirby's run on the demon. They're the only other creative team that I would like to see do the demon. <laughs> I don't care about the demon. I don't like the writing. A, I, I'm just not into yeah. it. So there was a, uh, there was a four issue miniseries just after the crisis on infinite earths written and drawn by, uh, Matt Wagner that I've always wanted to read, but never I've never had. read that and, either. I, you know what? That's been but, on my list. I've never read that, but otherwise Otherwise, though, you're absolutely right. Like yeah. every other demon series I've read, don't care, has been ignorable, and skippable. Quite honestly, sure. I find Jason Blood a lot more interesting than the demon. So, <laughs> yeah, kinda. Gone, gone, the form of man. Rise, the demon, enter again. But enough of this, Joe. We've got a mystery to solve in the pages of oh. West Coast Avengers Annual Number One from Marvel. It was still 1986. Is is it time for part two? This is written by Steve Englehart and Mark Bright, with art by Mark Bright, inks by Jeff Isherwood, colors by Petra Scotties. Scotties. 
Skatees. I'm going to go with that. And letters by Tom Orzachowski. Here is your setup. I also wrote this one. It was Quicksilver all along! After the team goes through the list of everyone that could have sold them out to Gyrich, complete with some great editor's notes that spell out what's going on in everyone's titles at that time, Quicksilver shows up and admits, he did it! I'm guilty, guilty, guilty of vengeance! (laughs) That's a direct quote, by the way. It is a direct quote. (laughs) He goes on to lay out his plan, where he'll get revenge at three key places in the team's history. The circus, where they became the Avengers. The mansion, where he joined the team. And an installation in Australia, where he was left to die! Allegedly. Now the Avengers must follow Quicksilver's trail and take on his hired henchmen, the new and even more deadly Zodiac Cartel. Don't worry, I got thoughts on them. The Avengers have no choice but to split into teams, East, West, and Reserves to foil Pietro's plan. But in the end, it's the vision that shows him the folly of his perceived betrayal by showing him the innocence of his sister's new twins. Yeah, I I do not buy Pietro's motives here at all. (laughs) Just going to say this is this is full on crazy pants era. Okay, like where he is in the grips of mad. That's okay. Clearly, that was the question I needed to ask because he's mad because Magneto made him and Wanda join the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Got it. Nothing to do with the Avengers, bro. He's mad also because Wanda fell in love with the vision again. Yeah. Not really an Avengers issue, more of a personal problem with synthesoids. And maybe you need to grow a little as a person. Okay. Yeah. Racist. (laughs) Finally, he's mad because the Avengers left him to die in Australia. Nope. I checked that too. They looked for him. They looked really hard for him and they couldn't find him. And what's more, they actually, say that in this issue they're like yes Pietro, we tried so hard to find you like cap straight up screams we look for you dude <laughs> yeah the story doesn't directly spell it out but joe confirmed it Engelhart and bright seemed to be trying to show readers that quicksilver was nuts while also kind of gently trying to redeem hank pym a little maybe because like hank had freaked out but they keep dropping these things where, like, well, Hank helped us a lot doing this, and Hank went to this person, and that's the only reason we know this is happening. So it seems like the redemption of Hank Pym is at hand here, too. Um, yeah, just for historical context, the the trial of Yellow Jacket right. happened uh, several years prior at this point. Like okay. In the late 70s, very, very early 80s. They keep saying he, like, just had a, a meltdown, basically. I mean, you know comic book time, right? All like, right, all right. It happened months ago, quote unquote, but it was, yeah, many years ago in real time. So they both had a meltdown, but Pietro is obviously not ready to put in the work. (laughs) No, he's not. He's not. The art is definitely better here. And the creative team crush a ton of characters, locations, and Zodiac cartel members into one book for a blockbuster of an annual. The story It's still silly, but this was a very silly time for the Avengers where personal drama was the order of the day. It was fun to see the origins of Freedom Force and how Spider-Woman joined the West Coast Avengers, though. There's like Gyrich being Gyrich totally mansplains to Mystique why the Freedom Force kicked off this deal. And we're going to go with Quicksilver, who has hired the new Zodiac Cartel. This is important because the Avengers put the Zodiac Cartel down. 
Well, the, yeah, there Zodiac some, has had like a billion different incarnations. There are some LMDs that evolved <laughs> and became the new Zodiac cartel. Yeah. And they're very touchy about it. And, and like Cap, even at one point, is like, you side with a bunch of machines, Pietro. And I'm like, whoa, 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 bro. Vision is your buddy. So let's right, chill yeah. out here. Exactly. You know? exactly. <laughs> I'm giving this a skim it. The, the ending was kind of fun, and they're playing on all this bonker shit that's going on with the Vision and Scarlet Witch right now. The twins are there playing a major part. Vision and Scarlet Witch are trying to, like, not be Avengers and raise their magic kids. Like, this is just nuts. But yeah. I, I can't deny that it's fun. It's definitely better than the last issue. Yes. Uh, I agree. What 100% wholeheartedly, this issue is a market improvement on chapter one. The art it's it, by itself is much, much, much better. Like bordering on like excellent. Yeah. I love Mark Bright already. Jeff Isherwood is a tremendous anchor. Definitely. And I like, I, this looked so good, but in a kind of slightly different way that I was like, Oh, did Kyle Baker ink this? Because Kyle Baker is another one of those guys that kind of puts a stamp on everybody he inks. But yeah, no, Jeff Isherwood, underrated, underappreciated. So this is a gorgeous issue. It's, boy, the plot is dumb. Yeah, (laughs) it's pretty silly. (laughs) And I, the Zodiac, this particular group of Zodiac characters, I guess, are stupid. They're so stupid. Yeah. Like Gem, I'm sorry, Gemini, your power is to become Twice as tall as as one man because of Gemini. Well, but also two. he has like an equal and opposite personality. So at one point they're like, yeah. oh, you better quit fighting Gemini. And he's like, yeah, you're yeah, right. He's I'm bipolar, terrible right? at this. I'm sorry. And they're like, what was that? Yeah. And they're like, Gemini, you moron. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, okay, so all right. Uh, oh, you're a, you're a six foot guy and you can grow to 12 feet tall. Okay. I mean, that's not impressive as far as the Avengers are concerned. Well, what I'll, about the what about a Capricorn who can climb anywhere like a mountain goat? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And what about yeah, the fact that a guy named Quicksilver used to be an Avenger, yes. right? Comes to you and's right. like, "I'm in charge now." I realize you guys have a theme, and I really don't have anything to do with it. And I mean, not even really close, but uh, I'm in charge now. And they're like. Sounds good to us, Quicksilver. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, why? Why? <laughs> right? Why is, why is Zodiac working with Quicksilver? Yeah, it's it like, makes no sense. Like, the Royal Flush Gang shows up, you know, and Lex Luthor's like, I'm running the show. And they're like, all right, well, you got to put on a card thing. He's like, I don't think so. And they go, all right, you're in charge. Yeah, but, not, but not Lex Luthor, right? Blue Devil. Yeah. no, totally. Like a hero. Yeah, like Blue right. Devil shows up and is like, you're working for me now, Royal Flush Gang. Yeah. I'm pissed at the Justice like, All right, and but like, we kind of have a theme. And he's oh, like, man. shut up. And they go, sorry. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, this is a skim it just because it's just it's so it's so wild, but it is fun. Yeah. And I did really like the whole thing when they went through everybody that they thought could have betrayed him. Yeah, that was neat. And you got a glimpse of what was going on in their respective books. And the editor notes are like, check this out. Check this. And it's just Marvel like dealing drugs to kids at that point you're like yeah oh i gotta see what's going on there like oh i need that whole so like like, this is this isn't too far from this isn't too far removed from the vision and scarlet witch uh maxi series that we reviewed some time ago so they're in the suburbs visions wearing his turtleneck with no like mask or cape and it's weird yeah 
Thor's got a new secret identity that's not Donald Blake. He's oh, got a beard. He oh, looks sexy as hell. And he's just Thor. There's no question that guy's Thor. Well, I, right. That guy doesn't look <laughs> no. like he doesn't turn into a human. He just like no. looks like Thor in a flint in a lumberjack <laughs> outfit. Pretty much. Uh, but he like, yeah, I agree. It's totally fun. Like they talk to the Black Panther. Black Panther's like, I'll be right there. You know? Right. And so that that part of it is is fun. And it's it's kind of interesting to to think that this was a time where if you gave the Avengers like five minutes, they could name every single person that had been a member. Sure. And it wasn't that hard. No, you couldn't do that today. No, you couldn't do it today. No. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's fun, but it's the story is really dumb. Yeah. It's, it's a skim <laughs> for sure. Oh, but yeah, like there was no height. The second you look at the cover, there's no, they're, they're not even trying to hide who the villain is. No, he's it's got his little hair insane. things. That's right there. <laughs> Matt, you ready to get extreme? I don't think I am. I'll be honest. I haven't stretched. I don't think you are ready I'm to get extreme. I'm not hydrated. I haven't stretched out. I don't think this is a good idea. Too bad. It's X-Force Annual number two from Marvel. It's 1993. Written by Fabian Nicieza. Pencils by Antonio. Tony Daniel. Inks by Mark Pennington, Kevin Conrad, Brad Vencanta, Bob Wyacek, and Keith Williams. That's one, two, three, four, five inkers. And let me tell you, it shows. <laughs> uh, yeah. Colors by Kevin Summers. Letters by Chris Iliopoulos with a cover by Daniel and Conrad. Here is your solicit, courtesy of Majorspoilers.com. Uh, first time using these guys, and I actually really like what they wrote. In a dark alley in the Southwest. A woman named Michelle is running for her life, trying to escape capture by agents of the mysterious strong. That's his name. Proper noun. Yeah. Michelle and the equally mysterious Adam X have a really long winded conversation. <laughs> that explains a little bit about his powers, a little bit about her powers, something about their background and the fact that he doesn't have any memories. Uh, except for all of the alien slang and some of the na- and the names of some of his gods. But other than that, no memories. It's kind of a blur other than that. Yeah. Oh, and also some, uh, an atrocity that happened in his village, but otherwise no memories. Yeah, nothing other than that. <laughs> Finally, they start to square off only for X-Force to arrive and interfere. But Adam isn't worried. He's extreme. That he is, baby. Would it surprise you to learn that Marvel also decided to introduce a crop of new characters in their 1993 annuals. It's true. They did it. But unlike DC, Marvel didn't bother to create a crossover story to do so. They just showed up. The characters were just, they came out of nowhere. They showed up in these one shot stories. Hey, and there they were. It worked at image. Why couldn't you do it at Marvel? You know? Yeah. Why not? As with the new bud, the vast majority of these new characters faded into obscurity Except for one of the biggest X punchlines of all time, Adam X, the extreme ongoing X-Force writer Fabian Nicieza delivers one of the most tediously preachy scripts of his career. And because this is an extra size annual, it feels like it goes on forever. Yeah. This issue is almost painfully 90s with huge guns and rippling muscles. As far as the eye can see. And Adam X is decked out with a bunch of knives, fingerless gloves, and a backwards baseball cap. But he doesn't put on the cap until later 
which means he stopped to accessorize on his way to the big team up. A young Tony Daniel illustrates this issue and his work, though obviously dated and still developing, is pretty good, I thought, despite the need for five inkers, five different inkers. There are, and you know what, to be fair, I didn't really notice a huge difference. Uh, so there's, it's definitely like, it looks like Tony Daniel from some, sometimes page to page decides I'm going to do something a little different with my style here. Yeah, I mean, and it's that, not I mean, going to be as good. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. And that's, that's what happens. When like you I'm looking at a page of in the cable kitchen. where he looks like he is three feet tall and he weighs 500 pounds. <laughs> like, yeah. It's yeah. not no, great. There are a couple of amazing pinups in the back from other future superstars like Chris Bacalo and Jay Lee. There's a Larry Stroman joint in there, but he had already, you know, he was already drawn X Factor at the time. Look, X Force Annual 2 isn't great. And Adam X is a ridiculous character. But I have to admit that Nicias' story does have some interesting moments. And Daniel's art is pretty fun. It's just way too long and self-serious for something so silly. I'm going to give this a skim it and I get that that's pushing it and Matt may disagree, but I, I I had fun. I 100% disagree. This is a hard to believe it. (laughs) This is trash. This is absolute. This is like Marvel jerking their knee terrified of the sales that are going on at image right now and going, all right, all right, we can do it too. Here we go. Here you go. We got it. It's right here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it just, it is thoughtless. It is stupid. It is he, not to mention that Adam X is the poochie of the nineties Marvel. I mean, he is the poochie no of question. the X-Men. Yeah. He he's the poochie of the X-Men. And this is not going on in the regular title right now. The regular title is very good. It's a lot of fun. Now, they're knee deep in well, a lot. Same of, creative team, though. Same creative same, team. Same dudes creating it. But the regular team is knee deep in some serious cable strife, you know, kind of bullshit at this time. Which well, and Adam X does immediately go into X Force after this. He issue. does. I agree. But it's like this just feels like some type of editorial mandate where they went new character. It's Adam X. He does all this. He's got Wolverine's claws. He's got a backwards hat. He shoots lasers. He does anything you need him to do. He does it all. It's cool stuff. He right? doesn't shoot lasers, but no. I get it. Yeah. Got, and it's just barf. This is terrible. This he is lights your blood on fire. This is laughably bad. Joe. And it is a perfect <laughs> example of what was wrong with the big two in the nineties, jerking yeah, their I mean, knees and freaking out to try and pull everybody away back from image. Basically. I hate it. <laughs> you know, I, I, like I'm thinking, I'm thinking back to the other annuals and I honestly can't think there's the executioner, right? Who, who we both think is pretty cool that, um, appeared in the uncanny X-Men. Well, annual. who turned out to be pretty cool at first. We were, I mean, I he looks cool. Right? I think I we're mean, all like badass. That's kind of a silly outfit. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think the executioner looks cool and Jason Pearson draws it like it's go- Oh no, it's, it's not just Jason Pearson. It's Gaijin studios. Yeah. So it's like all of those guys. It was really neat. Yeah. Really. I, I didn't people. pick that annual. I don't like, I wanted to pick it so bad, but I thought it would be too big of a softball. I had to talk about this one. But I'm thinking about the other characters that debuted in this, uh, you know, this initiative, and I can't think of a single one. Oh, Legacy, which was the original codename of Janice Vell, Captain Marvell's 
son who okay. later became Captain Marvel himself. Oh, okay. But he first appeared in the Silver Surfer Surfer annual of this year as Legacy with the ponytail and the jacket and the finger. Let's go. All the things that we hate. Right. And uh, so other than other than that character and for better or for worse, Adam X executioner, I guess there's a speedster character that shows up in uh, she's like the courier in She-Hulk, right? She's the super speed courier in Dan Slott She-Hulk. But that's it. There's nobody. Yeah. Like one guy's a superhuman boxer with like a rooster thing on his head. <laughs> it's, just it, garbage. It, what, it's garbage. Really? Let's, Come on. We're done talking about this. This is trash. Let's switch gears from the Avengers to Justice League America. Annual number five. Not of America. This is Justice League America. There's a difference. Yeah. Okay. This was part of the Armageddon 2001 event. And, you know, if you've been around, you remember what happened in 2001. It was terrible. Yeah, you remember Armageddon when it <laughs> yeah. happened. It's from DC in 1991. It was written by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMattius, with cover by Steve Carr and Joe Rubenstein, breakdowns by Keith Giffen, pencils by Steve Carr with framing, bridging, and sequences and inks by Jose Marzan Jr. What does that mean? Steve Carr draws all of the framing... So no, no, no. It's okay. Yeah. 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 What does that mean? You, I, I like don't... you phrased that, you phrased that wrong. The inks of the Steve Carr's inker is Jose Marzan Jr. Oh, Steve Carr did the framing bridging sequences and did, Jose so Marzan Jr. Is framing a framing sequence is you've got a, a comic book where it's the story starts in the present and then and then 20 pages of flashback and then by a different artist and then and framing, okay. right? That makes sense. When we'll bridging talk about that sequences in a would be in between like each standalone chapter. So it goes back to Steve Carr in between each individual. Gotcha. Okay. Right. That makes sense because there's a series of yeah. flash forwards we're going to talk about here. Right. Colors were by Gene D'Angelo and letters by Bob LaPan. Here's your setup. I wrote this one too. In the wake of Maxwell Lord getting shot, Wave Rider visits the Justice League International Embassy in New York in disguise as Captain Adam to see if anyone on their current roster becomes monarch in the future. As Wave Rider touches each member, he gets a look into their future and learns they aren't just the legendary heroes he studied. They're just people who became heroes despite their own fallibilities. The creative team gets to have a ton of of fun here using wave rider as a device to tell an intertwined future story of the JLI with the aid of several creators on each character's future vision. Chris Sprouse does the Martian Manhunter story. Derek Robertson gets to do two. He does guys story in the future where guy starts a cult. He also does Fire's story, which sees ice and guy getting married in the wake of what happens at one of guys, uh, cult appearances. Kevin McGuire shows up and does Ice's story. And then Marshall Rogers does a kind of depressing Blue Beetle. Dan Jurgens uh, shows up to do Booster, who kind of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like Booster is sort of redoing his origin. He's a janitor in the Space Museum in the future, and he grabs a time machine and goes back in time to try and do it all again as a hero. I mean, yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of like he gets sent back to square one, right? Where Right. He he was a, a security guard at the at the Time Museum or whatever in okay. twenty in the twenty fifth century, and that's when he stole all the gear. 
Here it's a and space then went back in time museum. And became Booster Gold. Yeah. Okay. Right. Got and it. so, yeah, he like, you know, he had a fall from grace and ended up having to be a janitor at a different museum. And then, yeah, the cycle repeats. Yeah. Oh, and Oberon proposes to fire and she says, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you Oberon, know, the, the little guy from uh, the new gods. Yeah. You know, what? little bald guy. Hey, he's a person. Oberon's a compelling sure. character. I love him. It's a very clever device. And even in a giant annual crossover event like Armageddon 2001, it makes for a great read years later, completely removed from that event. The creative team is massive and highlights some of my favorite artists that were at a very young stage in their career, but still very talented. The only time I've read any of this Giffen and Demetrius Justice League stuff was really for this show. But every time I have, Matt, what a, is wrong with you? It's a Get great read, it, man. I only wish the current Justice League had this kind of personal spark. I'm giving this a buy it. This issue is a ton of fun. All of the creators involved are doing excellent work. Derek Robertson was drawing Justice League, I think, at the time, Justice League America or Justice League International. Uh, very young Derek Robertson. Um, Chris Sprouse, holy shit, like Chris Sprouse is Love here. Love that, dude. I, th- I thought Steve Carr's stuff was great. Yeah. And uh, no joke, on a short list of my favorite letterers of all time, Todd Klein, you know, um, uh, Tom Wozniakowski, who did uh, Uncanny X-Men, etc. Bob LaPan is one of them. His lettering is so unique. I love it. This is a huge buy it. I love this issue. I'm not satisfied going just 10 years into the future for my final review. Let's go thousands of years into the future for Starman Annual number one. From DC, it's 1996. It's written by James Robinson with pencils by Craig Hamilton, Brett Blevins, and J.H. Williams III. Inks by Ray Snyder, Blevins, and Mick Gray. Colors by Kevin Summers. Letters by Bill Oakley with a cover by the hilariously typoed Tiny Harris. <laughs> it's a little guy. Tony Harris. He's a little Tony guy. Tony Harris, obviously. <laughs> Jack, Jack Knight co-creator, Tony. Here's your solicit. This is cobbled together in part from the promo for the uh, theme. And then I think my comic shop.com earth is dead. Those who once might have called it home are long scattered to the endless stars. But in that scattering on a thousand different worlds by a thousand different ways, earth's greatest legends live on on a mysterious planet in the distant future. The shade tells a strangely familiar group of children two tales of times past and a tale of triumph and tragedy. The Shade speaks of this stellar star man saving his people. Then a tale of heroism featuring Ted Knight, the Golden Age star man. Legends of the Dead Earth was a really interesting concept that carried through DC's 1996 annuals. It wasn't a crossover, so much as it was just like a theme and they had done it in previous years. Like one year, I think 1994, they did um, year one, another year they did elseworlds and they were just one shot stories, right? Legends of the dead earth features potential ways that earth's heroic legacy could survive its eventual destruction. It should come as no surprise that my favorite of that bunch was Starman annual one which explores a potential future where the spirit of Opal City survives for thousands of years 
kept alive by its last surviving resident, or at least its last, you know, its longest running resident, the immortal Shade. This doubles as one of the series' times past issues, where the history of the Starman mantle is explored, often going beyond the Knight family. The first story links a forgotten Starman from the 1970s to Ted Knight's legacy. This Starman, Prince Gavin from the planet Throne World, made just 13 appearances between 1979 and 1981 before being killed off panel in Crisis on Infinite Earths. It's just like in one pan in one scene, there's like, oh yeah, I heard about a I heard about a the ruler of Throne World got eaten by the Animatter Wave. Pretty Z-list like, at that point, though. I mean, you know. Right. No, it's true. <laughs> but they don't even show his death. The second story explores the link between the Knight family and the Odairs, Opal City's multi-generational family of police protectors. Robinson's script reads like an extended issue of the main series with a sense of melancholic wonder and hope. It also teases past and future Jack Knight adventures and names his successor for the first time. That's something that comes back later. The art throughout is wonderful, especially the framing story by Craig Hamilton and the bridging sequences by Craig Hamilton and the Golden Age tale featuring art by a young J.H. Williams III. The Gavin story features more traditional superhero art from Sleepwalker co-creator Brett Blevins. Yeah, that's right. That's Sleepwalker. If you're interested in checking out Starman at all, and you should, Starman Annual Number 2 is a must-read as far as I'm concerned. And you know what? Hey, go ahead and check out the other Dead Earth Annuals. Some of them are pretty great. I'm giving this a buy it. This is one of my favorites. James Robinson is really good at stuff like this, where there were these annuals that were going on and they were all themed and it was a really good idea by editorial to do it this way because it's a way for people that don't read Starman or didn't read justice league or, you know, weren't reading whatever to get real flavor of what's going on in the book without having to know everything that's happening in the book right now. You know what I mean? Like he can tell this larger story that says, this is how my stories feel. This is the main character. This is where he kind of comes from. Here is a smattering of different things from that universe. And he can do it so friggin' well that he will rope you in. If you weren't reading it, if you pick this up, you weren't reading it. You're going to go check out Starman after this. This is a mm. masterful annual. It's absolutely gorgeous. And there's like some just flat out cheesy golden age flash Gordon stuff going on that he can write so well that it becomes like feeling very modern and, and still modern for the time, if you will. You know, this is in the middle of 1990s extreme lunatic comics, and James Robinson is doing the exact opposite of that. And it's wonderful, massive yes. by it. This is the polar opposite of your last book, Joe. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it's true. I mean, and it's, look, a lot can happen in three years, right? Sure. 1996. We were we were pulling out of the speculator crash and, you know, the companies were getting their shit together and we were starting to see real growth and and like excellent stories. I mean, we were still getting stuff like Heroes Reborn or Onslaught right. or whatever. But, you know, 
we also got we in in a year's time or less than a year we we also get things like thunderbolts and mark weed's kzar and yeah we're pulling out of the the nonsense era the thing is though is that james robinson and tony harris they kicked this off in 1994 yeah which was like the height i mean that shit i mean like starman is a zero hour spinoff right like uh, it's insane to me that 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 this book came out at that that time starman had no business succeeding and i correct me if i'm wrong but there was a time where dc was like ah we're canceling this one and fans went no and they went all right we'll keep it around (laughs) i seem to remember that yeah i seem to remember the book being kind of on the verge but in the end james robinson was able to tell the story he wanted to tell and it ended on its own terms and it to me it is the perfect run of comic books We finish our voyage into these oversized annuals with another theme from DC. This was JLA annual number one as part of their Pulp Heroes theme that ran through 1997. It's written by Brian Augustine, cover by Gary Gianni. Listen to this lineup. Art by Ariel Olivetti and Gene Ha. Letters by Pat Gary and a young Pete Tomasi on separations. Well, he was also the editor. Oh, so, okay. Like, Pete Tomasi was at DC at the time as an, in an editorial capacity. Here's your... But still, though, yeah, Pete Tomasi. Yeah, young... I just... I didn't know he was around back then. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's your setup. First, John Jones takes on the persona of a hard-hitting private eye investigating what the rest of the world and the JLA believe to be a small town that thwarted an alien invasion. The truth he discovers will bring the town to its knees and remind the Martian Manhunter that his distance from humanity may sometimes be a good thing. Then the Justice League faces a group of terrorists that set up a force field around the UN building. Any superpowered source will trigger the field, killing everyone inside. And now it's up to Batman to lead a stripped down team that can only rely on their smarts and fists to stop the terrorists. I remember reading this annual back in the day and not being real impressed. Augustine was telling a very different story than Grant Morrison's typical over-the-top superhero gods in action in his monthly title. Here, the theme was Pulp Heroes, and both stories see the heroes relying more on their street smarts and fighting abilities than superpowers to deal with much more down-to-earth threats. The John Jones story is Definitely over the top, complete with a hot dame, crooked cops, and a dirty secret no one wants exposed. It is very well written, though, and Olivetti's art is just amazing, even this young in his career. The second story, Lockdown, with art by Gene Ha, is just beautiful. Ha is a master illustrator, and his oddly realistic style still looks great, even with a heavy gray color palette. It all takes place at night during a thunderstorm, so it's very shadowy. Taking the powers from the JLA is a fun way to make the team work differently, but, I mean, when Batman's in charge, everything's probably going to be fine, right? (laughs) Upon revisiting this one, I have to give this a buy it. This was a lot more fun than I remembered. Yeah, I I loved this back in the day, and I love it now. Yes, it's very different than JLA, but that's that's kind of the point of Pulp Heroes. Exactly, right. Pulp Heroes was... The theme was exactly what it sounds like. Every character's story was written and drawn in a style that was an homage to a different genre. So sure. 
you know, you had this one with the hard boiled, you know, John Jones thing, or you like the, you know, the, the gritty, like in the heat of the night, kind of like there's a dirty secret or whatever. I kind of didn't buy uh, the Superman thing where they're like, I don't know. It sounds like some people murdered some aliens. What's the problem? <laughs> like, I mean, well, yeah, Superman, got, they murdered I mean, it's them. <laughs> it's not, it's certainly not perfect. Hitman did like a spaghetti Western, yeah. you know, I, I, uh, there were romance ones. I'm sure Batman did, did almost nothing, but like Lamont Cranston, the shadow type shit. Oh, totally. I'd have to look, I don't yeah. remember, but I remember really liking pulp heroes, the issues that I read. And this issue, uh, is so good. It's so good. And the art is incredible. Gene yeah. Ha, you know, Gene Ha is just a couple years away from starting top 10 at this point. I miss when Ariel Olivetti used to draw like this. I miss it. I do too. Like to me, this is the peak. This is Ariel Olivetti's peak. Right. Before it got, before he started using so much like digital background stuff. Yeah, like the, know? like, I mean, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure it's not exactly as simple as this, but it does. It did. His latest stuff does look like he just like straight up threw a photograph in the background and then did something to it. But this is this is beautiful. This is a buy it. I love the, I love this issue. Now that we have plowed our way through eight oversized annuals, we have to pick one, one each to enter the THN permanent collection. Matt, which one of these blockbusters are you picking? It's too easy for me to pick Starman, and we've picked Starman for too many things. And there was even a time where we put it in the vault, and we said we are no longer allowed to pick that book. As the I don't remember whatever. agreeing to that, but all right, that was whatever. a while ago. So I'm not going to do it. I'm going to give it to the Demon Annual. I have to do it for the no, reason I'm just about to say. I do. I have to give it to the Demon. I'm going to have to give it to the Demon Annual because of where it came from. I mean, it would just be a great annual on its own. It'd be great but it came out of the worst event they've ever done. And don't like, judge a comic. Don't don't judge a comic based on that. But like, I'm judge saying it on its own merit. This creative team was able to still do this and make it work while simultaneously making fun of that event, knowing how stupid it was. Like that's brilliant on more than one level. I'm giving it to the demon annual. I mean, yeah, my, I'm giving it to the demon annual as well. The JLA annual is exceptional. I it's love great. it. Obviously, the Starman annual, you know, it's it's the pick of my heart, but apparently it's in the vault. Again, I didn't agree to it. But the Demon annual introduced, introduces a character that's near and dear to my heart, and it led to one of my favorite runs of DC Comics ever of all time. And so, yeah, how could it be anything else? Yeah. It's the Demon. With our back issue review duties fulfilled, the CLB returns us to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where retired Shonen Sunday Comics star Pro Golfer Monkey has been waiting to discuss the Live Golf Tour merging with the PGA, and he is not happy at all, for reasons that should be obvious, because the Saudis, they are a terrorist regime. Let's not forget about that, folks. Joe, you better let me handle this one. Why don't you tell the nerds about your must-read pick for next NCBD Wednesday, June 14th. 
Just say New Comic Book Day. You're not saving any actual time. I think time. it's fun. It makes it sound hip and because cool. You have to stop and think about what the next <laughs> letters are supposed to be. My pick for next week is Void Rivals, number one from Image Comics. It's written by Robert Kirkman with art by Lorenzo De Felici. Real quick, peek behind the curtain. I get a text from Matt today at like the 11th hour. We're, we're going to start recording in like 10 minutes. I need a superhero golfer. <laughs> and this is what he came up with. There are none. There you know are what? literally I, none. I mean, yeah. The best I, the best I could come up with was, uh, I know that they've shown Superman hitting, uh, hitting balls on the moon, but yeah. that's not exactly playing golf. I do like Japanese comics. are like, we need a name for this, like, you know, pro golfing yeah, I mean, monkey. I get it, man. What should it's, we call them? They're a, like, what about pro golfer monkey? <laughs> and you know what? Right. You gotta give, you gotta give, uh, old Jim, Jim Heavey a little bit of loving every once in a while. Throw him a bone. Oh, this is from 1978. I don't think Jim's ever heard of this shit. <laughs> oh, I, I, you know what? We'll ask him on Saturday. Okay. Cause I bet you that you're wrong. Here is your solicit for Void Rivals. Series premiere. The blockbuster Oblivion Song team of Robert Kirkman and Lorenzo De Felici. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Chroma by De Felici? De Felici? It's I'm, Chroma by De Felici is the name of it. Uh, that might just be someone who is just De Felici. I don't know if Lorenzo I think De it's Felici Lorenzo De Felici. Look it up real De quick. De Felici. I don't know if they're the same. I, I might be wrong, but it seems kind of a coincidence. They debut the biggest new comic book series of 2023 with the launch of an all-new shared universe and a surprise you won't see coming. War rages around the Sacred Ring, where the last remnants of two worlds have collapsed around a black hole in a never-ending war. Hey. However, when pilot Derek and his rival Solila both crash on a desolate planet, these two enemies must find a way to escape together, but... Are they alone on this strange planet? And what dark forces await that threaten the entire universe? Map bomb your findings. Confirmed. De Felici is Lorenzo De Felici. Bingo, bango, bongo. That means All the right. art in this is going to be blow your hair back stunning. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. For amazing. sure. So I picked this because uh, for two reasons. It's been a long while since we've done anything from Kirkman. And that's just because a lot of his stuff is it just been. like... It's just like dozens of issues in, you know, he's yeah. got so many, he's got a few books and they're all just like deep in it. And so there's not really, doesn't really seem to be a great time to just pick a random Kirkman issue unless you want to do one of the reprints of The Walking Dead. And yeah, he hasn't not. started anything new for quite a while, to be perfectly honest. Well, that's because he starts things and then he sticks with them for a long time. Yeah, like which, Oblivion cool. Song ran a, went a long time. And there's one thing that I really appreciate about Kirkman, and that is that that dude knows how to build a shared oh, universe. Yeah. Now, this isn't a superhero universe. It's kind of a sci-fi thing, and that's fine. But he excels at creating a shared universe. I'm excited to check this out. As you said, Lorenzo De Felici is just amazing. Oh. Amazing. He's a superstar in the making, and this book is going to be gorgeous yeah. beyond belief. And read his so, fire, read Kirkman's firepower if you're not. That book kicks so much ass. Oh, well, I mean, Chris Somney. I mean, oh, it's so good. My pick for next week is Queen of Swords, number one. It's from Vault, it's $4.99. It's written by Michael Morrissey with art by Corin Howell. Here's your solicit. Spinning out of the pages of Barbaric comes an all-new standalone rip-roaring fantasy adventure filled with mayhem, humor, and a bloodthirsty weapon that just won't stop talking. 
Sarah is a witch with a checkered past. Ka is an assassin with an agenda all her own. And Deadheart is a barbarian who wants to bash everyone in her path. They'll have to unite their skills to track down a powerful foe who's tied their lives together. Get ready to meet your new favorite instrument of death, the evil Gabar, whose spirit is now trapped in Deadheart's sword. More talkings, weapons. <laughs> I love it. Discover the origin of the dark magic that turns Soren into the tattooed witch she is today in this totally new story. The perfect place to step into the world of barbaric for the first time. Morrissey, like barbaric, you've heard me scream about it. It's just wonderful. Yeah. And the artists that he works with, Corin Howell is not on barbaric, but Corin Howell is also very good, right? And he just keeps gently expanding this world this fantasy world for these characters and his yeah. ideas are lighthearted and fun and violent and sometimes offensive and just profane. Yes. Great. <laughs> it's absolutely great. Distressingly bloody. Right. He's writing the anti-fantasy comic is what he's doing. This is fantasy yeah. like for monster truck fans, you know, <laughs> it's great. It's fantasy for stuff. people that hate fantasy. Yeah. It's great stuff. I love Morrissey. My, Michael, if you're listening, you can use that as a tagline. There you go. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they hadn't thought of that one. Ooh, pull quote, buddy. Pull quote. We're <laughs> just dying. We're dying to get our, our name, our uh, quote on another book. I think fantasy for people who like monster trucks is a better pull quote. <laughs> either one. Either one. It doesn't matter. All right. Well, how about this? Workshop. We've workshopped it. Fantasy for people who hate fantasy but love monster trucks. Hey, that's not bad. <laughs> that's not bad. See, that's why we're the two-headed nerd. All right. Uh, I knew you were going to pick this one, and I don't blame you. I this sounds great. I love that. I, I love it. I love the idea that this world is just going to be populated by these talking weapons that have demons. It's or a thing, evil wizards, you know, like souls trapped in them or whatever. It's just like that's so great. It's so great. I hope he's got a mouth. If he doesn't have a mouth, then what are we even doing? He needs to have a big mouth so we can see his teeth. It's got a mouth. Awesome. Can't wait. The THN. Must read trade for next week is Night Fever. It's a hardcover from Image Comics. It's $24.99. It's written by Ed Brubaker with art by Sean Phillips. Here's your solicit. You bet we're gonna play some Bee Gees behind this. You know, I I, I, I was gonna make sued. a joke, but I'm I was gonna make a joke, but I'm just I was gonna leave it to you. I was gonna leave it to the um, you know I was gonna, <laughs> that's good. I was going to leave it to the composer to, to come up with that. <laughs> a gripping new original graphic novel from Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, the best-selling creators of Pulp, Reckless, Criminal, and Kill or Be Killed. Who are you, really? Are you the things you do, or are you the person inside your mind? In Europe, on a business trip, Jonathan Webb can't sleep. Instead, he finds himself wandering the night in a strange foreign city with his new friend, the mysterious and violent Rainer, as his guide. Rainer shows Jonathan the hidden world of the night, a world without rules or limits. But when the fun turns dangerous, Jonathan may find himself trapped in the dark. The question is, what will he do to get home? A night fever is a pulse-pounding Jekyll and Hyde noir thriller about a man facing the darkness inside himself. This riveting tour of the night is a must-have for all Brubaker and Phillips fans. Yeah, no shit. It sounds like kind of a departure, right? Um, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it's not... Uh, crime. I mean, it's not hard-boiled crime. I mean, different different kind of crime, right? Yeah, it's not, uh, it's yeah. not criminal. It's not... Uh, it sounds a little more right. psychological. 
Be sure to add these comics to your pull list at your local comic shop if you want to read along with us and let us know what you thought of our picks. If Matt had read this, he would have said LCS because he thinks it's cool. I do. And let us know if you go in any weird sex parties in one of these weird lost nights. Of it's not like Eyes Wide Shut. Stop all it. about it. I mean, you know what? Actually, yeah, Eyes Wide Shut kind of qualifies. Totally. At 100%. <laughs> but not every story like that is a weird sex story. I think that's where we're going here. There's going to be weird sex and murder and darkness. They don't do uplifting, fun stories, Joe. They do soul-crushing say- stories of men... Like confronting their own monsters, <laughs> like demons. I didn't Dang. say it was going to be uplifting. I'm just talking about the idea of it. Excelsior! Oh. <laughs> that is it for THN 706. Next time, we are back reviewing new comics, and you're going to get a little snippet of our Patreon extra where we're doing TLDR! The Secret Invasion Edition, just in time for you to be the nerd in the room who knows everything about the new Secret Invasion TV show. Although it's going to be different. But whatever. We're going to talk about the comic version. In the meantime, check out... When has that stopped us before? Exactly. In the meantime, check out our Nerd News Update show. It hits your feed every other Monday. And join us for the THN Cover to Cover Gang Hang, Saturdays at 11 o'clock Central. Check out our Discord for details on how to join... Joe Patrick, what else can they do with our Discord? Are you shopping for a tasteful one-piece swimming suit for the Mad Titan on the go? Maybe you're confused about what skeletons are made out of, like Captain Marvel Jr. Perhaps you're celebrating Chris Hemsworth admitting that Thor Love and Thunder maybe wasn't that great. This sounds like it was written by AI, by the way. <laughs> or... All happening on no, no, no. our Discord. <laughs> Maybe you just want to answer the question of the week. This week's question is courtesy of Jim Stafford via the Discord. What piece of media, whether it's a comic book, a TV show, a podcast, a video game, whatever, did you really enjoy but inexplicably did not finish? Why did you fall off? Do you want to go back to it or do you think it's too late? Not something that you stopped because it was bad. You were legitimately enjoying it. Yeah, you loved it. You don't know why you stopped it. Sign up for our Discord with the link at twoheadednerd.com slash Discord, where we've got channels for all of our segments, or you can send an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com, and we'll put you on the show. If you're new to this show, and you would rather donate your skeleton to Captain Marvel Jr. to help this poor dummy out, rather than listen anymore, I assure you, it's only because you have not heard enough. Good news is... You can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at twoheadednerd.com. THN, it is a listener-supported podcast. It would be chock full of really bad ads without the generosity of donors. Like cover-to-cover, gang-hang regular, and THN's resident Star Trek expert, Mr. Franklin Cirillo. If you like what Wait, you hear every maybe week. he's the Star trek expert. Don't do that. That's disgusting. Ooh, no, I like that. If Too you, late now. If you like what you hear every week, it's easy to support the show. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash nerd, and I won't allow Joe to give you a bad nickname. Star Trek Spurt is not a bad nickname. That's terrible. <laughs> Shut up. Before we go, we'll let Frank decide. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to the Iron Sheik, Hossein Kosrao Ali Vaziri was one of the WWF's premier heels of the 1980s, spouting anti-American insults alongside his tag team partner, Nikolai Volkov. 
He later became the best damn follow on Twitter you could ask for, regularly telling anyone that drew his ire, whether it was for real or for fun, to go f*** themselves, you son of a bitch. Word to you, Sheik, I'm sure you've got some jabroni in the camel clutch up in heaven right now. Just take it too soon. That guy... I'll tell you what, being a heel is 81. He was 81. Man. An easy job. And 81 for a wrestler, that's ancient. These guys don't live that long. So good for him. Yeah. Gonna miss that guy. Hey, once you grow up enough to realize that, you know, it's a role, you know, you learn to appreciate the heels a lot more, I think. And I think looking back outside of my childhood at what he was able to accomplish and the character he was able to cultivate. Incredible. Amazing achievement. Incredible. Like, a, a lasting legacy. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just break your worthless jabroni neck, Bubba. This is the Two-Headed Nerd, signing off. <laughs>